Hello, welcome to the first episode of our new show. My friend John Deere, writer and co-host of the podcast M4 Death Trip and Birdcast, was interested in delving into the wild world of the Jello film. I, Dave Thomas, an enthusiastic fan and owner of several Ponzi film books, volunteered to act as the Virgil to his Dante, or at least as the accident-prone Roman doctor to his hapless American tourist. With me as his semi-coherent and occasionally accurate guide, we begin our deep dive with a discussion on the origins of the Jallo, the film that arguably started it, 1963's La Ragazza Chase a Vitropo, also known as The Girl Who Knew Too Much, aka The Evil Eye, and the career of its director, the great Mario Bava. Please join us. This is Due Signori in Giallo. The supernatural powers of the evil eye claim still another victim. Its malevolent enjoyment of tantalizing torture hangs threateningly over John Saxon, Letitia Roman, and Valentina Corteza. While The Girl Who Knew Too Much is a tame affair compared to many later films, John and I do discuss psychological trauma, gendered violence and gaslighting in the course of our conversation. So as this is the first uh, steps on my terrifying and hopefully not too problematic Jallo journey with starting Ooh. with 1963's <laughs> The Girl Who Knew Too Much, uh, I'd like to spend a little time talking about where Jallo comes from and why it is what it is. Okay. So um, the initial thought is um, what does Jallo, i.e. Italian for yellow, actually mean? Right. Uh, so the fairly well discussed history of how Jallo became Jallo, and in its simplest terms, like you could just say, oh, it's an Italian thriller and move on. But in actual fact, so back in, I believe it was around the 30s, there was a series of mystery novels in Italy. Um, and this was not like a new idea. Uh, it had been done in the UK by Hodder and Stoughton, who had a series of books uh, with yellow covers, familiarly known as Yellow Jackets. And other countries have done the same thing. I think Germany had a similar kind of thing. Um, so a publisher in Italy called Mondadori uh, started uh, reprinting a series of existing mystery novels people like um, Agatha Christie um, Earl Stanley Gardner who did Perry Mason books um, Arthur Conan Doyle uh, Edgar Wallace who is features very heavily in the periphery of the Jallo films if not the actual uh, films themselves although producers were keen to stress that he was very involved you mean adaptations of his books or in terms of themes or styles so the producers were very keen to try and stress that many Jallo were many Jalli were adaptations of his books even though they weren't um, because right. he, in Europe he was uh, he was quite a well-known name of mystery movies which we'll, we'll I'll touch on in a sec because these novels were very popular and you know the the, the kind of image that I've I've kind of botched together for our Facebook page is of an, a typical kind of Mondadori Jallo novel cover so it's a yellow background it has a red circle it has some artwork in the middle and so these covers uh, so these books were, were popular uh, very popular in fact and so in Italy, the kind of term giallo, which means yellow, just became shorthand for a mystery, any kind of mystery. And then sort of as we, as time went on, um, and I actually don't know when the series ended, I've got to be honest, but um, it, it was certainly happening uh, during the Mussolini regime. And under Mussolini, only Italian authors uh, were allowed to be published, so you couldn't have the various, uh, you know, foreign, famous foreign writers. Uh, so you had uh, less well-known and, in fairness, less talented um, local writers uh, being published under the same kind of Mondadori imprint. Uh, and because that then led to kind of the popularity of the, the series declining, they started throwing in more sex, violence, prurient elements to try and kind of keep the series going. And after the fall of the Mussolini regime and after World War II, that kind of stuck. So before that, these yellow, the, the yellow books, the yellow jackets, mm. they could contain anything from the more lurid details of of crime uh, yep. and sex to 
Agatha Christie's Cat Among the Pigeons, say. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And they were all they were all termed Jallo because Jello. of the colour because of the because of the colour of it. So what we're talking about here and look is the film adaptations of the style of the later Mussolini in kind, kind, kind of, yeah, yeah. And it's sort of the jelly itself as a film is sort of this weird mashup of a of a lot of different things that changed as it went on as well so it's kind of not something that comes into in, into existence static and stays like that mm, it, no. you know it's, it's influenced by other things that are going on both in the the if you want to call it a genre because it's kind of i guess the mystery genre but also you know other things that were happening in international cinema and and, and things like that so yeah in its kind of basic term it's um it's a mystery it's kind of quite a specifically european mystery um anesta gastaldi who was a screenwriter and he wrote a ton of not only jelly but italian horror in general so i have a, a brief introduction from one of troy house jello books um and he wrote that he said it's not a detective story it's not a thriller it's not a suspense movie it's not a horror film but it can be any one of those things and all of those things rolled into one what sets a jello apart from another story two things a difficult to explain event and it's rigorously logical explanation based on the evidence and details provided in the story um, he, he then goes on to say that many Jello writers um, often cheat, uh, which I would say is probably the, the norm rather than the exception, including Gastoni himself on many occasions. What do you mean by cheat? So if you go into a Jello and you're kind of looking for a logical explanation to the plot, this may not be the genre for you. In some cases, they work very well. In some cases, they make no sense at all. <laughs> Uh, so someone else who's, who's written quite extensively on the jelly is Michael J. Coven, who's a, a film professor, I think, at the University of Worcester these days. Um, and he kind of talks about them as the bridge between murder mysteries and horror films, um, okay. which is probably as good as an, an explanation as you get it. What is What does and does not constitute a jello is an argument that is probably going to persist until the heat death of the universe. Mm-hmm. If you if you throw a pebble into the pond of the internet, you will hit at least three forums where people are arguing over whether or not Suspiria is a Jello. Suspiria is not a Jello, incidentally. I'm just going <laughs> to say that right now. Um, that is our official position. That is well, that is my official position. Other, others others disagree uh, loudly and violently. So it's one of those types of classification where. There are a lot of elements that are often in a jello, but not always. So, to thriller, the basis is usually some kind of sexual perversion. A lot of them have crazy pop art design, but not all of them. A lot of them have, you know, these fantastic psychotronic kind of lounge music soundtracks, but not all of them. There's often over the top violence, there's often gratuitous nudity. But not always. The plot may make sense, it may not. It's kind of an added bonus if it does. One thing that is definitely true is that characters in a Jallo film don't act like actual humans. <laughs> for most, for the vast majority of them, I would say. There is one that I know that we're, we're going to come to at some point in our journey, and it's not exclusive. There are actually several where you'll hear something like, there is a serial killer who is murdering young women um, usually salaciously and someone will say to a, fr- a character who's normally like a best friend or something can you believe that the, all these women are being killed and they will respond with something like oh less competition for us or I'd be worried when a razor wielding killer isn't trying to murder me or something like that just people is, is the dialogue for women internally sorry, almost entirely written by incels <laughs> <laughs> And the years before incel was was a thing. Um, that's a good question. I see that that's another thing with the Jallo because a lot of people can you know, will look at them and and over the years they've certainly been dismissed as as being highly misogynistic. But I've also seen some very thought provoking and spirited like feminist readings of Jallo films, including some of the ones that are really problematic. If you want to use capital P problematic, if you want to use that term. 
Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. Police in Jali are normally useless if they're even there. Does that reflect sort of uh, uh, an Italian view of the state? If the sort of protagonist uh, is usually a, a, are they an amateur or a private detective? Or? Um, they can be. Very often, it's um, that the one of the tropes that comes up time and time again is it will be an outsider who's in a strange city who is has either seen a crime take place and in the case of where the protagonist is female the rest of the characters will try and convince them they haven't seen anything so um, gaslighting is a huge thing in jelly um and quite often they may also be if it's a a male-centric story they may be accused of committing a crime that they then have to clear their own name so um that's not an uh un uh, uncommon trope in say short short horror or ghost fiction like of uh, M.R. James or E.F. Benson and an, an mm. outsider arrives into a situation mm. and because you as a reader are unfamiliar with the situation you as the viewer here explore the new environment with the with, with the protagonist. I presume that's that's often a, a, the, a, the in if you like for, 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 the, for a lot of these films. Mm. Yeah, and it's also quite a. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a standard mystery trope as well, yeah. isn't it? I mean, you know, Hitchcock was doing that back in The Lodger, um, which is actually a pretty good Jallo plot, uh, <laughs> to be honest. Um, okay. You know, guy accused of being a serial killer has to try and prove he's not a serial killer is is kind of Jallo one one. They don't tend to have supernatural elements, although some of them do occasionally. So it's kind of it, it's one of those genres where pinning down a hard and fast definition as with a lot of genres is really quite difficult but you kind of know it when you see it was it a term that was used at the time or has it been added retrospectively uh oh that is a good question i'm not actually sure it's certainly i think as they've picked up kind of an academic or you know a fan base over the years um it's definitely become a, a shorthand but I, yeah i don't know actually for the time I, I wouldn't have i don't think they were ever actually advertised as this is a new jello um in the period when they would have been coming out in the 70s um though there are actually a couple of films called jello um one in the 1930s even mm. um so so that they that you was, know they, that was they, italian presumably yeah 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 so they were conscious of the idea that Jello meant mystery, um, even as far back as that, because it is a mystery film. I've never seen it. I think it's potentially lost. It's certainly very obscure. But and there was one uh, again, another one I haven't seen because I think it's a fairly minor one um, from I, I think either the late sixties or early seventies that had Jello in the name. So it was something that was I, I guess was in the minds of the people making the movies. Potentially, I guess, because in Italy, this is just pure speculation, because Jallo just meant mystery. It was just a term that you would say, you know, I'm going to see the new Jallo. As in you would say horror. or as in Yeah, you would say exactly. An, an accepted subgenre. Rather yes. than something like, I don't know, I was thinking of subgenre that I've become somewhat sceptical of over the years when you say folk horror. No one... Early yes. on, no one made a folk horror film. It was just initially a term that, that Piers Hagen pulled out of his ass when, when trying to sort of talk about a slightly rural aspect to the to, to the story he was making. But nowadays, people mm. actively try and make folk horror films. And that then, because of the Adam Scoville chain, starts to limit what those are and it becomes sort of self-defining but i'm but i'm guessing yeah. no one said i'm gonna make a a jello film and it will have the, it will be lurid color uh sex nonsensical plot that that won't be how you try and <laughs> that will just be i'm making something in a, an aesthetic terms that that, that that appeals yeah and and very much the the nature of the italian film industry outside of art house circles was what will make money what will make money is something a bit like the last thing. Um, yeah. So the, the reason why a lot of elements that come into the Jallo, certainly in the late 60s and the 70s, is kind of what's the last thing that did well? Let's do more of that. Is it is it uniquely Italian? You talked a bit that sort of France, Germany has sort of a something similar. The starting point tends to be Italian. There are lots of Italian productions that have European co-finance from other countries. So... Um, you will have like Italian Spanish Jello, Italian German Jello, Italian French Jello, and that normally means they will end up with a couple of actors from um, whichever territory they they're getting money from. There's also kind of a um, 
particular kind of subset of Spanish jelly because uh, Java was popular in Spain. So there are a number that are kind of made specifically uh, f- you know, in Spain with kind of Spanish market and an international market in mind. So they tend to be, and they tend to be sort of slightly cheaper and even more kind of lurid and exploitative, mm. um, but also pretty interesting And you have people like Paul Nashi. Um, I think, yeah, the, the, the German influence kind of comes in. So in Germany, I think starting at the tail end of the 40s, there was a series, a very long running series of adaptations of Edgar Wallace Mm -hmm. crime stories as I mentioned Edgar Wallace was uh, someone who was published under the Mondadori imprint and you know a a legend of of, you know crime and mystery fiction and so this series of movies um, made by a company called Rialto Film um, were called the were called Crimi and so Edgar Wallace Crimi um, was basically a a, a hugely popular long-running series in Germany uh, and if you ever see, because because you know there were Edgar Wallace films, and you know there's a, there's a very long running series of Edgar Wallace movies uh, in the UK as well, mm. um, the Edgar mm-hmm. Wallace presents. Um, and if you kind of compare those to the German ones, what you find is that the German ones are way weirder, um, <laughs> way more over the top. And so as as time goes on um, in the series, you start to get things. Um, so they they tend not to be so much murder mysteries as I mean this is a incredibly broad generalization, and, and I haven't seen a ton of them because they don't tend to travel outside Germany that much. I've seen I've seen some, but they tend to be more around. You know, someone's looking for a stash of gold from an old criminal organization, or someone's trying to hunt down a mad scientist, or break up a crime ring, or something like that. But what, where they do start crossing over into the jelly is that they will quite often have like a um, colourful killer, colourful sort of cinematic terms, but also in kind of characterisation terms. So, you know, the monk with a whip, the squeaker, you know, the, um, the black abbot. You know, the sort squeaker. Of very. <laughs> yes, quite. Um, so there are various different elements from that that, that seem to have also kind of been picked up in the ether that then kind of moved into the jelly. Certainly um, when you get to kind of Barber's Mario Barber's second jelly, Blood and Black Lace, that kind of look of, you know, the sort of someone in a dark raincoat with a mask and a hat and gloves is something that would not be out of place in a Edgar Wallace crummy. And in fact, that's really why quite a few jelly were then kind of marketed in Germany particularly as sort of Edgar Wallace stories um, even though they were not at all um, and you even get so you start to get like crossover actors so Klaus Kinski is in a lot of Krimi and then he turns up in, in some Jally mm-hmm. later on um, so you know there's, there's, there's this kind of melding of, of different genres yeah it's it's one of those things it's, it's very difficult to kind of unpick what went into it and then other things you know sort of Hitchcock is definitely a, a huge touchstone um, I mean, the the film that we're going to talk about literally riffs the name of a Hitchcock movie, or two Hitchcock movies, in fact. Though I hope I, I like to think they were referencing the um, the first one and not the remake. Um, <laughs> Dor- Doris Day did not feature heavily in the Jello. Oh, sure. um, so then you also have, as you pointed out, things like noir. Um, so the Fritz Lang noir, particularly, is a very something that I think. Certainly, Barber was was uh, probably referencing, um, and then um, Henri Georges Clouseau, later I believe, is very influential on a lot of Jallo actually, particularly so, so different classifications as well. I mean, it's this huge kind of spider web. You know, you need like red string on the wall and photos and, um, to try and uh, unpick it all. But you know, some people talk about um, the F Jallo and the M Jallo. So the F Jallo is like the female centric one. And that tends to be where the, the protagonist is fearing for their own sanity and being, you know, gaslit heavily to prom- you know promote that because ultimately the, the the antagonist is trying to make them think something or or get something from them. And that's a very diabolique thing, <laughs> diabolique element. And then the M Jello tend to be more kind of, you know, just the nature of the 
films of the time, you know, they tend to be less of the psychological trauma and although no, not exclusively, but more about, you know, sort of thrusting forward and solving the crime. And although to be fair, you know, the, the um, one of the things you, you do find in, in Jally a lot is, is sort of quite damaged protagonists. So yeah, all of those things are kind of bubbling under. Really. So the girl who knew too much, which is the, what you've chosen as the starting point for, 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 for this journey, what, presumably that's regarded as the first Jalo film. Yes, um, and, and considering that it's quite a quite a um, nebulous genre in a lot of ways, it's interesting that there is a film which is sort of accepted as yeah. the first one, <laughs> which is quite is quite helpful uh, because you know generally with genre it's like what was the first this well someone can always find something earlier, um, but this is yeah this is kind of the first time those elements sort of solidify into a specific and specifically solidify in a, in a film that's designed to be a murder mystery that is quite specifically italian i think but yeah i mean so i mean some there there is there's often a footnote mention that sort of the first technically the first giallo is um so lucina visconti made a film in 1944 I want to say um, so he made a film called Ossessioni um, apologies if I butchered that pronunciation um, which is an adaptation of James N. Cain, James M. Cain's The Postman Always Rings Twice mm. which was published under the Mondadori imprint so technically that is an adaptation of a Jallo novel now I I am not the best person to ask about Italian neorealism, neo but I did go and watch Ossessioni before we uh, discussed this. And um, actually, though it is uh, a really terrific film, it is not what you would then consider a giallo um, in the kind of lurid, sensationalist, bananas um, way that the films that we're going to be talking about as we go uh, become. And the other thing that I was kind of thinking about it was because it was actually pretty heavily suppressed. So initially it was suppressed because um, it was made during the uh, Mussolini regime. And when they saw that it was kind of sex and violence and, you know, these elements that they considered... um, forbidden it was basically destroyed and it was actually Visconti who saved a print um, or saved saved a negative I think um, which is why it survived Um, but then subsequent to uh, the the fall of the Il Duce regime he had never actually got the rights to the novel so (laughs) subsequently then suppressed because it was uh, not uh, he didn't have copyright and I believe it didn't actually get shown uh, even in Italy what like widely or even at all until the 70s so by the time barbara is making the girl who knew too much it would would think that he would not have seen right it. and so just to understand that not only was it uh, suppressed by mussolini's regime it also transpired that it was made in breach of copyright anyway yes so Correct. was that Presumably that wasn't totally un- un- uncommon at the time, or was it just that they thought that it was an internal Italian film? It wouldn't create much in the way of... I actually don't know. I, I, something I read uh, mentioned that they would they were kind of rushing to get it made and hadn't kind of... They thought they would worry about that later, and at that point, I guess it had probably been already been suppressed. So. <laughs> then you had other things to worry so, about. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, but it, I mean, so it's kind of an interesting footnote. So then you know you have these various uh, other elements coming together, and then you get, in theory, the girl who knew too much, uh, directed by uh, Maria Bava, who is someone we presume will discuss yes. discuss a fair amount, and generally, probably apart from Argento, the most famous name in Italian horror filmmaking, if not if not of all. But then you know, I don't think we'll be discussing Fellini much, will we? In these. Uh, um, probably not. No, that's that's a podcast for someone who is more in, more more erudite and uh, culturally sensitive than I am. Thank you for uh, thank you for singling yeah, yourself. Yeah, but there, 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 there was the, <laughs> actually, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not Fellini's greatest fan in anyone like myself. Um, but where, I mean, this isn't Balva's first film, is it? No, it's it's pretty early on in his journey. So he had um, he he'd been in the film industry for a, a long time. He his father was actually uh, an early uh, sort of film pioneer, 
in Italy um, back in, I think, even in the silent era. Uh, so he'd kind of grown up and, and um, grown into the industry. But he wasn't he wasn't someone actually who, from from all accounts, was that comfortable in the spotlight. So you know, being a director where everyone is, you know, everyone's attention is on you, was something a little uncomfortable for him. And in fact, so he 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 was most well known certainly up until the beginning of the '60s as a cinematographer and a special effects designer. Um, and he was an in-demand one because he was remarkable at it. Uh, and in terms of his kind of effects, it was all kind of in-camera, forced perspective, miniatures, this kind of thing. But he was astonishingly good at making something that was pretty cheap look like a hundred million lira. Hello everyone, this is Dave from the future. Uh, yes, as it turns out, a hundred million lira is about 350 quid. So Mario Barber was adept at making his productions look significantly more expensive than that. You really should check a currency conversion before you make such a grand claim. Now back to the podcast, already in progress. Um, so he was very in demand, uh, particularly for kind of adventure films and, you know, Sword and Sandal, Hercules kind of adventure movies that kind of thing because he could take you know soundstage at Chinichita and make it look like ancient Rome mm. uh, with just a few models so uh, that that was kind of his stock in trade uh, and then in 57 1957 so in Italy at the time um, again it's amazing how much it comes back to the Mussolini mm. regime we're talking about Mussolini um, a lot more than expected they, to but that's yeah that's interesting yeah. well exactly yeah, I mean, and and sort of reading around this, it's like, oh gosh, this you know keeps coming back to this. But basically, um, uh, horror films uh, were banned under the Mussolini regime, so the Universal horrors didn't make it to Italy until the 1950s. Okay, right. and they became a bit of a, um, they became quite popular. So, in 19, I guess it would have been 1956 when this was kind of being discussed, uh, there was a, a plan afoot with some producers to make an Italian horror film. Um, which became *I Vampiri* uh, or *The Vampires*, which came out in 1957, and it was directed by Riccardo Freda, who uh, is another kind of quite famous uh, Italian horror name who did, uh, did a couple of jelly, um, ultimately. And he had worked with Barva, and Barva was his cinematographer, and he did these kind of amazing transformation effects in the film. Um, but Freda was quite a difficult character, and the schedule and the budget was very low. So basically, with a couple of days shooting left or actually no i think i'm getting ahead of myself uh i, I think they'd reached the end of shooting i hadn't finished with you know there was still only halfway through the script freda walked and so barber had to finish the film and so that came out it's actually a, quite an interesting film um it was not a hit at all anywhere uh and then uh, shortly after that thereafter they may um freda and barber again made a film called uh Kaltiki, the immortal monster which is an Italian attempt to um, ape the Quatermass series. So you might, so you might find that interesting. And again, Freda walked. Now Freda, on that in that case, said that he did it deliberately because he felt that Barber should be a director in his own right. So by leaving partway through, it meant that Barber would have to direct. Other people have questioned that, um, but again, it was not a big hit um, or even a hit at all. Um, but generally, you know, Barber had this rep of, you know, he could take over in a crisis. Um, the famous uh, Pietro Francisci Hercules movies from the 58 with Steve Reeves. There is some talk that actually Barber directed quite a lot of those. Um, so then you get to 1960 when he gets kind of set up to direct a film and that movie is The Mask of Satan, or as it came out in America, Black Sunday, which did not... Yes, I was about, I was about to almost finish your sentence and then say, and that movie is Black Sunday, yes. and then you went the, then the Mask of Satan. I was going to go, oh, shit, I've never heard of that. Well, this begins a, another interesting uh, kind of something that leads into uh, The Girl Who Knew Too Much. So... The Mask of Satan, again, it did okay in Italy. Um, it wasn't a massive hit, but the the version that was released in America by American International Pictures, Black Sunday, was huge. 
But it, right. but you have the issue there that Sam Arkoff and James Nicholson from AIP, the two head honchos, um, they were making move. They were not making movies for an adult audience. They were making movies for the teenage drive-in crowd. So that meant generally if they picked up something like a, a horror movie, they would then amend it to fit more in the aesthetic that they wanted. So that usually meant um, they would cut some of the more um, extreme elements for 1960. Um, they changed the title, obviously. They redubbed it. Because um, I think they had, that there was a dub done of, of Mask of Satan in Italy, but they did their own one. Uh, to change some more of the elements, and they would always rescore them with um, music by a guy called Les Baxter, who was a terrific composer. Worked on a lot of really fascinating films. A lot of, um, I think he did pretty much all of Corman's, um, Roger Corman's Poe pictures. Mm. But for me, his music does not sit that well in Barber's Barber's films because there's too much of it, uh, and that is a problem that we will also have in Girl Who Knew Too Much. So, but Mask, because Black Sunday was a huge success, he then went on to make a couple of other films, including uh, one of my favourites, uh, Hercules in the Haunted World, starring Christopher Lee and bodybuilder Reg Park, um, which is one of those movies that you sort of think, oh, really? That's that's the concept? And then you see it, and you're like, this is one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. Um, it is, really? oh my goodness, it is... It is a work, a work of art, um, a work of the cinematographer's art. I mean, I don't think I don't think Barber was capable of composing a bad shot, and that film is just extraordinary. So he made a couple of other things, um, and he actually was, um, as far as I know, he was a collector of the Mondadori books. So he he was a fan mm-hmm. of of the genre of Jallo as a mystery. And had you know these these uh, the paperbacks that we're talking about. So yeah, when you get to the girl who knew too much, he was very uh, aware of of that kind of mystery structure. And I you know have been in the film world for a long time. I'm sure he was aware of a lot of the films that that we've talked about. And what interestingly, this movie um, because he'd had a big success with Black Sunday in the U.S. Um, American International came on as sort of co-financers and requested a kind of specific type of film which he delivered to them but then also made his own version for the Italian market which is why the international version uh, or the American version The Evil Eye and The Girl Who Knew Too Much are quite different films (laughs) Were they re-edited or just simply re-scored? Uh, well, in the case, it, normally um, I think it would just be a case of re-editing. But in the case of this one, there's actually different footage that are shot for the two versions. Ah, so yeah. there are things in the Evil Eye that are not in the Girl Who Knew Too Much. Um, to its great credit, I would say, because some of the bits in the Evil Eye are um, there are a lot of additional antics. Let me put it that way. Um, because what AIP wanted was something that was kind of a, you know, fairly light kind of murder mystery that was a little bit funny. Um, I think they had sort of three coins in a fountain kind of in their minds, um, and that was kind of what they wanted. And what Barbell actually was looking to do, I think, was or, or what came out in, in his version is something a little darker than that. Uh, the, the, the two films are frustratingly different because there are things in the American cut that I actually like better than the the Italian version, but the Italian version, I think, is a far superior film. So we're at a stage, basically, where Bava wants to make um, the film that he's uh, enjoyed from the the uh, the Jallo the Jallo paperbacks mm. uh, using using those influences mm. is now in a position to do so because he has a bit of money from from AIP. Yep. AIP want a slightly different film from what Barva wants to yes. make. So Barva makes his film, but also shoots several scenes to do a re-edit for what AIP wants yes. as well. essentially. Where are we in... I know we've discussed where we are in, with, with Barva. Where are we generally in Italian cinema, sort of Italian cultural tastes in, in 1963 when he, when, he, when he comes to make this? Mm. I mean, would this have had like a... Uh, a universal release in in, in in Italy, or would it have been in selected cinemas? 
Oh, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, so in the 60s and 70s, um, Italian theatres were broken down into, into different circuits. Um, so the big cities would have, um, I think, what they called prima visioni, um, which would be, you know, your big releases, your kind of prestige movies in the, in the cities with kind of a more affluent audience. Um, and then uh, what were known as uh, ter- terza visioni, in the kind of more um, smaller towns, rural areas, um, you know, sort of playing to, uh, I guess, a more kind of working class crowd. Um, And so the smaller chains and the kind of third-run theatres would generally be places where if you went there, it was kind of a social gathering. So you'd basically be going, taking some food, meeting friends, having a chat, not particularly watching the movie, um, which sounds like a nightmare um but that was that was what would happen and so for- it's, it also sounds like going into what we now term a civilian <laughs> these these these, these yes, going in going into a multiplex and someone deciding that they can they can text or they can yeah, chat well, while, while, while the film historical However, context you're saying here yeah but you're saying here this was basically this was a social structure where it's more like uh, a cafe or a pub in which uh, you're ostensibly there to watch a film, but that might not be the primary yeah. purpose for your visit, and that fundamentally that was understood by everyone that yes. was going. Yeah, uh, it's a bit like the yeah. Roxy, okay. in, like the old Roxy in Borough High Street. Um, so genre films would probably be playing in, in the, the third run circuits. Um, and so as part of that, in order to kind of occasionally capture the audience's attention, you would have to do something that would um, that would draw their attention to the screen. So um, throw in some action, throw in some violence, throw something exploitative in. Yeah, which is particularly why Jally uh, in the 70s tend to have a lot of uh, sexually exploitative elements. You know, if you want to show a, a woman being threatened, then you would probably get her to take a shirt off first because that then draws the attention of the audience, uh, even though the audiences of both gen- genders to the screen. So I, my guess, I don't know this specifically, but I would think because this was ultimately kind of a genre picture, it would end up in the... Uh, the kind of third run circuit. So that's why you would have um, visual style would trump uh, narrative coherence in many of these. Many yeah, stories. very much so. Because uh, I mean, certainly in the in the later jelly, you know, plot yeah. is not relevant because no one's really watching it for that, um, and probably still true today. And it's also where you'll so you'll find suddenly after a while that, that you can't go too long without you know, gratuitous breasts or stabbing yeah. at some point to 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 direct back in because this is the context in which the film will be seen therefore the answer then in mind but that's i'm assuming as, as not so much with the the initial with uh, the girl who knew too much which we're looking at here which is sort of which is not least of which because we're in 1963 and probably quite not quite there in terms of at least the the sexual exploitation element in in terms of um no no we're sense. not although um as we'll talk about when we get to blood and black lace we're not far off mm. okay. <laughs> so uh the first thing i noticed when when watching um uh, the girl who knew too much for for for, for the for the first time was it's got John Saxon. Yes, in it. indeed it has. Uh, um, who's in a, a variety of you know, you know, cult uh, genre films, uh, notoriety, and so you know Bruce Lee and uh, yep. the dad in um, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, what's he doing in the Jalo? Is this American money saying we need an American in this? I mean, you know. The, the uh, the the main character uh, who's actually not American, but her character is American, coming in from holiday, and then we have an Italian played by yeah played by an American. Is that part of the um, the sort of package of finance? I, to an extent, I think it probably is. Um, I think I believe, and um, the internet will tell me if I'm wrong. I'm sure, but I think John Saxon was actually contracted to AIP for a while early in his career. Um, but what's interesting about the 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 three primary actors in this so um, Letitia Roman uh, Valentina Cortese and John Saxon is they were all uh, Italian or actors of Italian descent who are actually working in America primarily so they could switch between um, European and American productions Um, and so John Saxon despite his almost hilariously 
kind of whitewashed stage name was from an Italian family. He was from Brooklyn um, and he was born Carmine Orico. Um, so obviously he spoke Italian and he was quite comfortable in these kind of European films. And in fact, he has... Uh, he's not in many Jally, but he's in a bunch of uh, Italian crime films like the Polizia Tesci that have become popular in in the seventies. He's in t- he's in Argento's Tenebrae. He is indeed, he's yeah, in yeah. So he's he's, yeah. he's someone who you know kind of switched between those things um, fairly comfortably. I believe that he is actually in this movie because Letitia Roman phoned him up one day and said uh, and asked him if he wanted to be in it. And I, the, there's some amusing story that he didn't understand what she said and and thought that she was asking him to be I think she said do you want to be in a horror film but because of her accent it kind of came out horror film and he heard art film so he turned up with an expectation that he was going to be into some sort of Italian there's, some, there's, there's this new Fellini type yes. guy his name is Mario <laughs> Bava exactly be in his and ex- extremely art house well you know there's, 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 there's it's black and white there's, there's classical there's classical absolutely there's glorious uh, monochrome, you know, cinematography. It's it's wonderful. Um, so yeah, so apparently he and he and Barber had a bit of a contentious relationship because of that. Is so the story goes. Um, I don't know how true that is, but certainly that's that's the story that's kind of been passed down. So yeah, so so the three main actors were kind of though they were in this as uh, Italian speakers, and you know, Letitia Roman certainly and Valentina Cortese were Italian. They would have been familiar to a certain extent to an American audience. I know Cortese got nominated for an Oscar mm. in Day for Day for Night. She only just died. I know I know John Saxon only yeah. died as well, but he was she he was younger. You know, Letitia Roman was in G. I. Blues for goodness sake. So, you know, she would What with Elvis Presley. Yeah. Wow. So okay. um so they, there was a, some sort of familiarity with uh, an American audience. What's kind of interesting is in okay. the Italian version, and this is one of my bugbears with with how this film ended up um so in the none of it was recorded sync sound but in the american cut i believe it's all of the actors kind of looping their own dialogue so it was letitia roman john saxon valentina cortese who are looping their own dialogue and in the italian version it's not even though they all spoke italian and so the for my money the performances register better in the american cut even though as a film, I don't think it works as well as the Italian version. So, the th- sorry, the three it- actors who are all Italian speakers are dubbed in the Italian By other version, actors, yeah. which is not uncommon. What? Okay. Any particular reason why cost? It was just cheaper to get someone else off in in the ADR. Um, I think that was just kind of so. I, I'm assuming at the point at which you were coming to do the ADR for the uh, um, Italian version, they'd probably gone back to the states. So they weren't available, yeah. and I know that um, certainly you know some actors had a bugbear with with how their performances were were treated once they kind of got to the the dubbing stage, and, and kind of Christopher Lee was famously annoyed. I mean, Christopher Lee was famously annoyed, but specific, specifically <laughs> uh, in a couple of cases um, where his voice on the English version was dubbed by somebody else. Um, as it is actually on Barber's um, Hercules in the Haunted World, that later on he put in his contract that if he was going to have to, you know, if the, if the dialogue was going to have to be looped later, he was going to do it himself, um, and they would have to make allowances for, in the budget and and the availability to for him to do that, because it does definitely affect how the performance registers. Even if it's not the actor speaking mm. on, you know, um, live on sync sound, um, there's definitely something to be said for the actor's own voice then being used in the performance. Which, and it's a it's a real shame because, as I said, I think I think the I think there are some significant problems with the American version that the Italian version doesn't have. But it's a real shame that the actors don't sound like themselves. It is. I mean, was there never any consideration doing what, say, Tony Richardson did when he made Mademoiselle and got um, uh, Jeanne Moreau to um, to record to do the scenes back to back and just record her lines in English and in French? Um, I don't know specifically. If I were to guess, I would say they did not have anything like the money or time to make that happen. Um, sure. Yeah. I believe this was a pretty low budget affair and they would have been working very quickly um which is 
one of the things that Barber was adept at. So that's probably why um, he was picked for for a project like this. So as as discussed, as with a lot of um, the films we'll be looking at in this in, in this genre, we center around someone arriving. In this case, it's a, a an American, I think her name's mm-hmm. her name's Nora, uh, and she's coming from the US to holiday in Rome by visiting her alien yes. aunt. So she has relatives in Italy. Not that you really need much explanation, but that's presumably why this it, this American tourist is unique in that they can speak fluent Italian, um, which makes things presumably uh, a lot a, a lot easier. Um, the aunt Damling conveniently dies just as she she arrives on, on the first night, um, and she goes. If it was, she goes to the hospital to try and uh, notify uh, the authorities of her aunt's death. On the way there, she's mugged, yes. uh, and then when she wakes up uh, in a semi-conscious state, she sees what she thinks, what appears to be a man put knifing or pulling the knife out of a of a, of a woman lying on the ground in a in a in a in a, in a piazza. Correct. Um, but when she reports when she reports it, there's no evidence of it, and they all think she's 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 making it up. But as as time goes on, we realise that she's going to be the next victim in a a serial killer's plan. Yes, and I mean, there's an interesting element that almost you think potentially maybe this is a supernatural film. I mean, because it's ultimately a Mm. Jallo, and we know now in hindsight, you know, having seen many many of these things, um, that actually there there is no supernatural aspect to it. but there was a murder in the same place of a woman who looks like the woman she saw uh, being killed. Uh, I, I think it's 10 years previously. So is she having a psychic flashback to that crime and in fact is not uh, of sound mind? And yes, and also kind of coming into the plot is her um, aunt's doctor, um, Dr. Bassi, Dr. Marcello Bassi, played by John Saxon. Um, who is a sort of young, good-looking Italian doctor who uh, attempts to get her over the the uh, various traumas that she's witnessed by essentially showing her around Rome and romancing her and um, and then quite violently kissing her when she doesn't seem to be particularly interested. <laughs> um, but it's 1963. This this stuff happens early trigger warning there for for things that might be that might be more even more gratuitous later in time there, there are there are quite a lot of not unwelcome but nevertheless gratuitous shots of um uh, it, uh, uh roman uh roman tourist spots um was, was was that given any thought to the to their sort of uh, financing by the roman tourist board or is that just a happy coincidence or indeed padding well i i I suspect that is probably um, part of the AIP stipulation that this was kind of a, a, a fun, breezy kind of travelogue murder mystery. Um, because, yeah, as um, the, the murder takes place, or the, the murder that she may or may not have witnessed takes place on um, the Spanish steppes in Rome. Um, so, and, and that is just one of many uh, very, um, please come and visit Rome, Type shots uh, in in the film, um, even though that sequence I think is is one of the best in the movie. It's just exquisitely captured. Um, yeah, it's one of my favourite uh, favourite bits in in any barber actually, and I have a lot of those. the um, the majority of the time though. Uh, Nora is in uh, the home of uh, Laura, who is a friend of the a friend of the deceased aunt, who and she's going away. Uh, but she right. gives her uh, her place to use while she's while she's staying, rather than presumably doesn't want to stay at her aunt's after she's after she after she's died. Mm. I'm not sure that's what it looks. It doesn't it doesn't matter. Um, but there's um, yes, but nevertheless, when staying in the complete stranger's house uh, that she never had, she becomes slightly obsessed with there's a locked door. Um, and I know she discovers yes. uh, clippings, isn't it, in the in the wardrobe about uh, the an alphabet killer. Who's been who's ki- who's killed yes. women with A, B, and C so far as their as their surnames. Laura's surname, by the way, is da- is Davis. Indeed. So it, it, it's lucky she was. It's lucky Indeed. she was. Well, for some reason, in the American cut, Laura Drowson. I have no idea why they saw fit to well. Anyway, um, 
we do, the, we are, it is inferred the locked door has um, some significance, although why Nora knows the locked door has some significance that she seems trying to get into, even though it's a locked door in someone else's house that she doesn't know seems a, seems a bit of a leap. But again, that's not the last time I'll be making yeah. slightly quizzical eyebrows at her. Yes, and and I mean part of part of the plot, and one of the things that I think is quite a a lovely little conceit in in this film uh, is that it is one of her has had a primary character trait is that she is obsessed with trashy mystery novels. So in effect, she's a Jello fan. (laughs) So she's Uh, almost in a meta way alive to these uh, to to these potential tropes. Absolutely, and but then it becomes an element. That the uh, the rest of the characters uh, basically use as well, you know, because you're obsessed with <laughs> okay. crime novels, um, that's why you're reading too much into, the, and that's why you imagined that you saw this killing when you'd just been assaulted. Um, and in the in the Italian version, there's also a a sort of curious little subplot about a, a packet of marijuana cigarettes that ah uh, yes that she that she drops that and, yeah Nora has smoked so so in the 1960s understanding of of marijuana she's in a you know hot fueled haze of <laughs> basically like an LSD trip the 1963 version where she's just imagining all kinds of things in conjunction with her love of mystery novels and. Uh, and and so it's quite easy for other characters to dismiss this idea that she, um, this mysterious murder, mm. or has she? Yes, I, I think I said to you when I first watched um, the film that I saw sort of a lot of the tropes of of, of noir in terms of character, in terms of visualization, cinematography, a huge amount of night mm. uh, night, night 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 scenes, and the city as somewhere. Mm. Uh, cold and dangerous and full of shadows and um, uh, not dissimilar as as you said as you said earlier to so to you know silent um, Hitchcock uh, films of films of films of that time mm-hmm. is that a conscious nod uh, from Barva or something he's he's trying to bring out to sort of the Italian I suspect it probably is um, I don't know I, I couldn't tell you either way but it certainly feels like something that he's he's very consciously drawing on the that sequence the kind of the assault and then the is it or isn't it a murder um and the sort of rainstorm and all the lighting that's going on there is it's glorious and it's pure you know so Bava was his own cinematographer on this movie and so it is it looks just stunning um i i particularly love the the shot where she's kind of being stalked by the the almost kind of incidental mugger really because he doesn't he doesn't then ever come back to the story after he's uh, he's only needed so she's rendered yes. unconscious to then wake up to see yes exactly what what she's what what, what she th- then thinks is a, a woman being yes and, and so she kind of he she, she sort of shakes him slightly and then he kind of goes down uh one set of steps and the camera tracks him all the way along the sort of piazza underneath and then he comes back up the next set of steps to intercept her again um and it's just the most extraordinary shot and i i also wonder if there's something pointed i don't know if there is but because of where this sequence takes place it's all under the um santissima trinita de monti which is the church at the top of the spanish steps and so there's some quite specific shots up to the church throughout that whole sequence and subsequently so i'm i don't know if if that's an intentional commentary on sort of what it what is happening under the view of of the church in italy because certainly there are a number of subsequent jelly that are very much commenting on on the the influence of catholicism and the church I don't know. It's just it's just something that struck me watching mm. it this time. That how there's very much a, well, there's very much a sense of place. Yes, that, yeah. The yeah, the steps, the church. It's um, presumably that would be known to, at least to to Roman. Absolutely, audiences. and I think yeah, there, there's something in this is all happening under the eyes of God and and um, mm. uh, some interesting things there. I may be doing. I may be reading it instead of watching it, which you know is something a 
as kind of poncy you know, would-be film fans do. Well, hopefully the seven people that are listening to this are also those those sort of people. Otherwise, they might not have been listening to this in the in the in the in the in the in the first place. I mean, this is. I mean, I mean, for all the the problematic stuff we'll 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 come to, and all the necessary trigger warnings that are that are nevertheless here as here as well. This is very much a female-led drama. Yeah. Even the 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 love interest in John Saxon is still is still a supporting character. Yes, and a lot of a lot of Jally are, and and I think that's why some critics can you know look at these with a with a very feminist reading, um, and you know certainly critics who are who are not um, shy in in calling out um, you know systemic and specific misogyny um, if they think it is warranted. But you know people like Kat Ellinger talk about the Jally in 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 kind of very feminist terms, and and, and certainly not always, but you do have a lot of um, female protagonists who not relying on male intervention to move forward in in unraveling what's happening to them um a lot of the time then and not so much in this but certainly in in films later on sort of if if you know where there is um a more sexual element and a more exploitative element they do tend to be in you know sort of acknowledge their own sexuality and be kind of unapologetic for it um which is something that um, I don't know is necessarily true of you know sort of other films uh, of of the same period. Yes, that they have. She has well, certainly Nora has agency. Mm. As you know, um, we can accept we can accept that the 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 love interest is there, mm. uh, but very much as the as, as yeah the, the the reverse we would see constantly and, and would be unremarkable mm. in uh, in this as well. And indeed, adding to the to the agency, uh, the killer's a woman. Absolutely, and how common is that in a in a genre? Um, surprisingly so. Um, gender okay. is something that they they play with a lot in the the identity of the killers. I was actually thinking about this when looking at the films that I've kind of uh, programmed for us to talk about in this initial run. Curated, I think. Curated. Thank you. <laughs> I'm such a toss. I think curated is not a particularly gratuitous. Okay. If said slightly with slightly in tongue in cheek for the for the films you have chosen. Sorry. Um, but yeah, it's, what was interesting looking across the the initial selection is an awful lot of these do have a female antagonist, and that's not actually by choice. That was just sort of the ones that I picked because I liked them. Um, and thought they were interesting examples of the movies as as they progress through the period. But yeah, the, it's it's something that comes up with some frequency. So you know, and and I don't necessarily think ultimately that um, they're drawing specifically on this movie. Um, there there is a probably a tendency uh, of and certainly something I am guilty of as well of kind of looking at this and Barber's subsequent full-length jello blood and black lace and kind of saying well this is what started everything and everyone was influenced by this and actually that's probably not true um there are certainly other things that would have influenced subsequent filmmakers probably more than these two movies although they certainly play into subsequent movies but it is interesting that the first you know official jello uh, if you want to call it that, has a female antagonist. So was the film generally well-received by the sort of audiences that aren't really paying attention when, when watching films, as, as we've discussed, uh, as it was also released in, released in the US, was it, um, for the US money, was it, as, was it, really, was it well-received there? Uh, it was certainly better received in the US than it was in Italy. Uh, one, of, ah, one, of the, one of the real kind of tragedies, I think, of Barber is that a lot of his films would, did not do that well in Italy and were subsequently rediscovered. And the the versions that people remember, obviously I, I came to this a bit later, um, so I kind of really started discovering like at the tail end of the 90s, but people that were watching at the, at the time were probably seeing certainly dubbed, often cut, often re-edited, slightly naff versions of the original film as i have said i'm not a huge fan of the the version of this that played in the states but i think it was reasonably successful for for aip and they certainly uh were keen to kind of carry on that relationship with barbara and subsequent films that he did were also 
picked up and one might say ruined uh, by AIP. <laughs> so, um, in, in in terms of their editing, yes, yeah, the, the, and that wasn't done by by Bavre on the like this when making it. That was their subsequent. Uh, edit so, so the film that there were, the film that he'd made immediately after this, which um, is either known as the the Three Faces of Fear or uh, in the US was came out as Black Sabbath, uh, was... An anth- Not to be confused with Black Sunday. Uh, no, no, no. It's a no, different no, film different from, from Black Sunday. Um, and that's a, that's a kind of three-part anthology, as the name might suggest, um, which... Uh, in its Italian version, um, it, it, there are some minor differences in editing in terms of you know some of the footage that's used. So Boris Karloff, who was under contract to AIP at the time, um, appears in one of the stories, but also as the kind of uh, the host. So he kind of introduces the uh, the narrative. Um, Americans like that. Don't yes, they? they do. Yeah, because he like, like with um, uh, Out of This World. Uh, when that, that that was introduced, I think by um, by by Karloff. Yes. But when they remade British Out of the Unknown, nowhere we having a host. Famously, uh, the Twilight Zone has you know has mm. has to be introduced by exactly by Yeah, and and um, and the footage they use um, of Karloff in in both versions is slightly different. So in in the Italian okay. version, he's just standing against a very barbaresque colourful background and in the American version it's just a close-up of his face yeah and again the, the film has quite a lot of re-editing that the, the order of the stories is moved around to their detriment I would say they change one story very specifically which is quite important that we will talk about when we come to uh, our next conversation on Blood and Black Lace because I think it's it it's uh, quite uh, a significant change. So yeah, the, the the film is perhaps these days regarded as a little bit of a, of a footnote because the film that the next full length Jallo that Barva makes um, is probably more in keeping with what the Jally becomes. This is perhaps a, a little tame uh, coming when it did. Although I do think it's interesting. Um, when I watched it this time, you can't help but notice when Letitia Roman gets knocked out, she falls over very photogenically. Barbara is really keen for you to notice that Letitia Roman has legs. Um, and, <laughs> you know, that's that's certainly something that, you know, for, for 63 is, is, you know, it's not, it, it's not overly uh, prurient, but it is perhaps a an indicator of where we're going. It's interesting to me how many elements that become kind of jello shorthand are already here. You know, you've got the you've got the outsider coming in. You've got the crime that's witnessed or or is it the crime that you see is not actually what you think you saw. Um mm everyone trying to tell you that you didn't actually see that, that that never really happened, the kind of, you know, the, the, the full-on gaslighting. All of those are, are basically like Jallo staples, and they're all here. And I find that I find that kind of amazing, that then this didn't become really the... It's kind of a blueprint for the Jallo, but then because it wasn't widely successful in Italy, probably a lot of other people that then went on to make films like this hadn't seen it. So... It's a strange confluence that lots of people took the same things from this, you know, ether that we talked about with all of these elements in it, and this one just kind of picks up all of the things that everyone else would do. Is that I think because it's also it's in black and white, and people will uh, it would that will date it a lot more than if they can start at blood on blood and black lace, which is which is in color. Yeah, possibly, and, and and not least of which color is as we will discover uh, a major a major factor in in in, in Germany. Yes, I think I think potentially that's true um, because. You know, the, the, there are not many black and white jelly. There's there's Ernesto Gastaldi, who, as I said, you know, went on to write um, nearly all of them <laughs> in one way or another. Um, okay. He he directed a film called Libido, not uh, I, I think sort of mid to late sixties. I forget the exact date, which is in black and white. And then the vast majority of the rest are pretty much all color and, and very strikingly so. Um, apart from uh, oh, and the Possessed, which we're, we're coming to. Um, in a couple of episodes time um, which is 
very starkly black and white. Um, and a, a, gorgeous. A, oh, that's about so as gorgeous. about as black and white as you can go. Um, yes. An extraordinary film. So yeah, it's interesting. I I I really would love to to, to know um, exactly what exactly what influence this had on everybody else if indeed it did just because it just with the with the benefit of hindsight we can say but yeah but look you know everyone ripped this off nah probably not but boy it feels like they did it's influential yes Yes. highly highly influential and I believe the first time I Certainly, I'm not aware of an earlier example of the thing where someone shoots through a door and you get the beams of light shining through very photogenically, which happens towards the end. And it's, it has its cake and eats it, because not only is... but sorry, Nora is fundamentally vindicated in that uh, she saw what she saw. She nevertheless didn't see what she thinks she saw yep. because she saw someone disposing of an already murdered body rather than somebody some 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 somebody murdering yes it's a it, compared to what we might cover later on i suppose this could be considered considered low uh, lower key than, than 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 others but i i think it's a you know a quietly effective and incredibly beautiful uh, yeah. film um, so ultimately, you, you, uh, I'm, it sounds like you liked it. I did, yes, I did very much. I, it was more noiry and atmospheric than I expected, um, but I'd not seen uh, a black and white Marvel before. I'd saw this after I'd seen uh, uh, Blood and Black Lace, and Blood and Black Lace was what I expected it to look like. Right. I was I, I, I expectations. This didn't add with my expectations. This was this was more subtle. Mm. Uh, in some ways more interesting in some ways low, low, lower key uh, but I was bowled over by the uh, by the cinematography in particular it was it was beautiful there's, as you say the the shafts of light through the bullet holes there's a lovely bit uh, um, early on when um, uh, Nora's recovering in hospital and the the shots um, on high uh, of sort of the POV of the doctors and then the reverse POV of, of her looking looking at the doctors mm. you know you could see you could see late you can see lots of influences there but if you've seen you know misery you know you could there's the feeling of sort of trapped oppression yeah um it comes it comes out very well it was a it was an incredibly well incredibly well made film i thought and a very good one to start us off excellent well um i can't guarantee that this level of quality will be maintained throughout (laughs) but we will do our best never that was worse We hope you enjoyed this episode of Due Signori in Giallo. Join us again next time when John and I will be discussing, oh look, Mario Bava, and all the gory technicolour glory that is blood and black lace. Goodbye, and thank you for listening.